Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Songbook, the White Rabbit podcast all about revolutionary music books, the kind that we're desperate for in our Christmas stockings, so present buyers take note. I am, as always, your host, Jude Rogers, journalist and author of The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives, available in all good bookshops near you, etc, etc. And this is our final Christmas special, and what a special one it is. You've heard today's guest on the show already, although that might sound strange, all will become apparent. He's an incredible musician, composer, remixer, collaborator. He's released Lots of groundbreaking albums like 1995's This Film's Crap, Let's Slash the Seeds, and 1997's Let's Get Killed, absolute mainstays of my student days. He's written music for properly huge films and TV, including the Ocean's Eleven trilogy and Killing Eve, and introduced many years in the 1990s, and mine definitely, to the work of Serge Gainsbourg and Rodriguez through his mixes. He also very recently was working with one of Ireland's greatest ever singers on a new album before her death and he wrote an incredibly moving piece about their relationship for the guardian we'll be talking about that um, in more detail in today's episode he also literally wrote our theme tune (laughs) so i'm over the moon to have him here today's guest is david holmes welcome to songbook david how are you it's a pleasure thanks for having me Uh, where are you today i am in my studio in belfast and um, I'm not recording at the minute because I've got a new album coming out. So that's good. I mean, it's good not to be recording because I I was just like on this back to back to back to back of, of projects. And, you know, so I was working on new Primal Scream album, which is just about to be mixed. Sinead's record, my own record. And then Woman, The Woman on the Wall, um, a TV series with Ruth Wilson and... Um, um, a film for uh, Michael Winterbottom called Shoshana, set in, uh, you know, uh, talking about catching the zeitgeist, but set in um, Tel Aviv in the in the thirties, about the sort of the the, the beginning of the, the Zionist movement and the British occupation uh, within Palestine. So yeah, I, I've just been really, I've been lucky, but now that that's all over, I'm kind of just like breathing and I'm enjoying. <laughs> Just being in my studio, listening to music. I've got this like mountain of vinyl um, that I that I bought. I, I always buy records. One of the great things about the internet, um, one of the only great things is you've got like, <laughs> at your fingertips yeah. and you can buy like any book you want and you don't have to, I, I can still remain busy, but you know, take a half hour out and you know, buy some tunes, you know what I mean? Normally at the end of the end of a, like a hard day's, uh, you know, hard days in inverted commas. It's just actually having fun in a recording studio. <laughs> but you know, you just sound like you've been pretty full on. And um, and I wanted to say, obviously, a personal thank you for writing our theme music. You know, well, which you did last year. Actually, which yeah, that's, that's actually on my my new album. Oh, amazing! <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's called Prop Thirteen. 
Um, so Which an exclusive not, preview. Uh, Steven Soderbergh. It was something that was, you know, it's dedicated to him. Because um, that was one of his first email addresses going back. Oh, brilliant. Like, you know, over the last 20 years. Well, we are um, very privileged to have had, you know, its first outing. <laughs> oh, I thought I'd just jump to the first questions I ask everyone on this podcast because I thought it's a, you know, great way to get into some of the big topics um, about your career and everything I want to ask you sort of spirals out of them. So what was the first music you loved? Punk rock. You know, I, I grew up in a family of 10 youngest of 10 and growing up in the troubles in Northern Ireland, you know, you just spend a lot of time indoors, you know, we were a very working class family, you know, uh, you know, four small bedrooms. I, I had been saying three <laughs> until my family corrected me and went, no, it was four. <laughs> but that was like, you know, one of those was mm. actually my parents. And then the other three were housing 10 children. And, wow. you know, but it was, it, it, Right at, at, at the, um, you know, I was born in 69. So I lived right up to the Good Friday Agreement with a, you know, a civil war happening, mm. especially in the 70s. It was really tricky in, in the 80s. And there were just times that you weren't allowed out. So I just immersed myself. All you had was your imagination, you know. Um, there wasn't much money. You go out and play football with your mates, but there was times where your mom just said, you're not going across the door. So I, I just spent a lot of time in my own mind and my own imagination. And so I inherited so much music because all my brothers and sisters were older. I was a complete mm. actor, you know. <laughs> um, so I had brothers and sisters who were like teenagers and, 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 and you know, they, they, they had good records. You know, my mom had good records, not, not, not punk records. My mom, like my mom was like more, she was into, you know, the Beatles and Frank Sinatra and film scores and, Mahalia Jackson and Elvis Presley and, you know, people like that. Just amazing music, timeless music. But I was just really, I felt like growing up in Belfast, I was just exposed to so much. Like I was going to a different kind of school mm. without actually knowing it. Because, you know, you can't analyze why you have an emotional reaction to a piece, to a vibration, mm. and, you know, music. You know, and and I just did, and I didn't know what anarchy meant or anything, but I just, I loved the feel of it and the energy, and you know, uh, that was my first true obsession with 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 music. And then I had a sister that worked in a record store, and I had a called Smith's Records, and she would bring me home records and uh, tapes. She would make a tape for me on a Saturday afternoon and you know so I get this like a C60 or a C90 just like packed with with all the latest releases and um so I was really really fortunate and then I had sister Maggie who she went to art college and she in Manchester and then moved to London in like 69 and she so she would come home at Christmas with like big suitcases full of culture and you know <laughs> making my sister's clothes and Giving me copies of the NME and uh, original, like sort of, she gave me a French anarchy in the UK, 12 inch, you know, stuff like this. You know, like it was kind of like, you know, Christmas was more than once a year. <laughs> yeah. And especially when you're, you're the youngest of 10 kids, so you get mm. spoiled, but in a really beautiful way that I'm really grateful for. You know, it wasn't with, you know, having anything that I wanted. 
it was just about, you know, David's really in the music. You know, let's get him. My sister bought me London Calling for Christmas and searching for the young so rebels on cassette with for on a Walkman. So that was the first thing I ever listened to on a Walkman. And it was like, whoa, <laughs> can't get any better than this in terms of like the sound quality. And at that stage, you had like these virgin ears in terms mm. of like they hadn't taken a battering from, you know, life. And <laughs> yeah. being a DJ for 40 years, you know, so your ears are in complete perfect condition. And then you put a Walkman on and you just think that you've just entered. It's like, whoa, this is amazing. This is like, you know, this is like nothing else, you know, it was like the future, but only the beginning of something that you know, has led us on to where we are. Mm. And as you say, you've got this like little brother mentality as well, that you're getting sort of looked after and spoilt in some ways, but also that kind of, um, you know, knowing what little siblings are like, that energy about them. And you've got all these different perspectives, all this soup, which sort of makes so much sense. When I think about your music, you know, your work to me has always been about creating these incredible atmospheres really and you know I was gonna say you know is that about creating other worlds or escapism and I'm sure it is in some way given the environment in which you were growing up well yeah I mean I think it's I think you know I know that it's all linked in 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 some way like you know the first seven or eight years of your life is when you know there's a lot of you know you, you become pretty shaped you know in those sort of early years. Uh, but I always considered myself to be incredibly privileged um, because I, even though there was 10 kids, my mum and dad, dog, goldfish, you know, uh, <laughs> like, uh, you know, four bedroom, tiny sort of like terrace, you know, uh, house with a civil war going on on the, on the outside. I consider myself really privileged because there was a lot of love in, in my home. Like, my parents were amazing. You know, my dad, very old school, um, teenager in the 30s, hard but fair, you know, classic mm. work, old school working class, three jobs, my mom, three jobs, bringing up the family, you know, at the same time. But at the center of it was just love. Mm. And I, so even though we were like living under very difficult circumstances, there was so much joy and fun and love because that's mm. how you, like human beings are kind of built to, you know, to adapt. Yeah. You know, we're not built to sort of go, Oh my God, we're living in this civil war. We're actually just getting on with it on a day to day basis. I can actually look back and say it was, it was actually quite a, like a joyful time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like my house was bombed when I was four, you know, British army, just totaled my house, you know, like just middle of the night raid, you know, um, you know, and uh, having to move house, my brother having to move to America because his best friend was shot dead at the corner of our streets. So you have all this stuff, but then you have the other part, you know, mm. which is inside your imagination, the escapism, mm. listening to music, um, hiding the cover of Nevermind the Bollocks in case my dad <laughs> haven't had space from the troubles. I kind of look back on it now and go, holy shit, you know, because at the time that's just your life. Yeah. But once you've had sort of distance from it, then you can look back and go, 
that was fucking crazy. And yeah, yeah. We were very, very lucky. Yeah. Uh, that one of our family members um, got assassinated or, yeah. you know, they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, because yeah, absolutely. Very much like that's war, civil war is very much like that. You can just be at the wrong place at the wrong time. You can be an innocent mm-hmm. bystander. You could have a drink in a bar and it gets blown up. You know, you could be walking down the street and a car pulls up and they shoot you dead or take you away and torture you, like, you know, which which happens, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so It's unbelievable to think about it. Um, you talk about your sister bringing the enemies home. So... Um, the question of who was the first writer on music you love, you know, you were obviously a music press reader. So is it somebody from the music press? No, it wasn't actually. It was a guy called Richard Barnes who was like an ace face mod in the early sixties. And this is when the modernist movement that it would have been known as before it became like, before they started going to sort of like Brighton and, you know, Hastings and, and before it became like a real popular culture, and, you know, they were you going to Jewish sort of tailors and handmade shoes from like Italian, you know, shoes. Mm. You know, it's like um, it was that underground, you know, and uh, the book is actually just called Mods. And it documented the very beginning of mod culture. And he spoke. I've, I've, I've read that book about 50 times. And it, it's kind of, it's a weird layout, the book, because there's the first part of the book is only like, I think it's like a half a dozen pages um, of just text. And then there's just tons of photographs. And then back, there's another, but it goes really in deep. And that's where I learned about people like Peter Meaden, who was the ace face mod from London in the early 60s. And uh, like, you know, I've heard stories. He he lived in a room in Monmouth Street in Covent Garden. And the only thing that he had in the room was a bed and an iron and an ironing board. And, you know, to make sure he looked really smart. And he coined the phrase, which Eddie Peller used for his book, um, which was clean living under difficult circumstances. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. And, uh, I really relate to that. And, you know, I've always been fascinated by sort of gang culture, subcultures. And but mod was the first thing, you know, as a teenager, like I, I seen Quadrophenia and my life changed. And then I got a hold of the mods book, cost four quid. <laughs> I remember it costing four quid, very expensive for back then. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you could buy an album for three forty nine in the early 80s. And I just consumed that book and like everything about it. That's who where I learned about who Guy Stevens was. Yeah. And in my new single, the, the one that's out at the minute, Necessary Genius, two of the, the the people who are named in that are like, I believe in Peter Meaden, I believe in Guy Stevens, different parts of the, you know, of the song. And um, but there's another connection that we'll talk about further down the line to that song about a question I know you're going to ask me. <laughs> yeah. So it was about, like I found out like about the scene club. It was a Monday night club in the ham yard where the ham yard hotel is Yeah, in London. That's if you just walk down there past the sort of the, the, the pub and it's just next to a theater and it's just in the left. And that's where the scene club was. And, you know, Peter Meaden, he actually dressed the who 
Yeah, that, yeah. They were called the high numbers then. He turned them into mods. They weren't mods before. He sort of had the vision of them and they would come down to the scene club and they're wearing their sunglasses inside. But Guy Stevens was the DJ who, an incredible, just maverick, you know, he was the original. He he had this famous quote. He says, there's only two Phil Spectres in this world and I am one of them. And he actually produced London Calling. So many people don't know that, mm. but he produced the, the, the Clash London Calling, the album. But he was the DJ. He was obsessed with like rhythm and blues, soul music. And, you know, he'd be getting them by any means necessary, like sailors coming off the boats and stuff and, you know, doing these deals. And he knew where the records were and how to get them. So I, I, I learned everything about real, the real modernist culture in that book. And like I said, I probably read it about 50 times because only because there was only maybe like, you know, 20 pages of, of <laughs> yeah. text, but it what? was still quite dense. You know, I remember there was a mod in there called Johnny Moke, and he was the first mod to ever wear bowling shoes. Oh, brilliant. And so he went to, he went bowling and then left thought the shoes looked quite mod, left. <laughs> he went to a, like a bank holiday weekend. And then the next bank holiday weekend, everyone was wearing bowling shoes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was my first book and became very much the, the mod Bible. Yeah. You know, my whole youth was spent going to school without realizing I was going to school, you know, just through the stuff that I was genuinely obsessed with. Yeah. So, I mean, the only reason I became a DJ is because I had good records, you know. <laughs> and the DJ didn't turn up. He said, yeah, you've got good records. Can you play, you know? And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. And then suddenly it's like, I get paid 15 pounds. I can go and buy three albums, you know? <laughs> it was like, I like this, you know? I get to control what you dance to, you know? And, um, <laughs> you know, like uh, my early sort of life was, there was so many fateful moments, you know, just like, right time, right place, right family. I was very blessed, you know what I mean? I'm not going to lie about it. So your favourite music book is the Mods book. Was Richard Barnes your favourite music author or did you have anybody else in mind? I've actually heard this come up in your podcast a few times and I, I, I find it hard to sort of disagree um, as much as people like coming on with something that is unique and, you know, um, like... This is my, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Is 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 England's Dreaming? Yeah. By John Savage. And I'm a big audiobook fan. And, and the reason why I love audiobooks is because I'm always in the studio recording. and But when I'm not in the studio, like I'm in my car or I'm traveling, you know, and when you finish a day in the studio, I don't really want to go and read a book. You know, yeah. I want to sit in bed and like read one page and then sort of start nodding off. <laughs> so the audiobook is has been a complete revelation for me. And it it's interesting because I, I would listen to audiobooks again because I enjoyed them so much. But England's dreaming, you know, I'd read the book, but then I got the audiobook and it was just it was so inspiring. 
but it was it was the exact same thing as being a mod you know like you realize that all these like subcultures and you know um they're all the same really you know but they dress differently and they've got different music but it's still you know a gang that yeah you you, you belong to and within that gang there are there, there there are certain kind of like protocols you know you know when you're young and and, and you're sort of really into something you know especially when you're talking about the first people who did it yeah you know that's where all the gold is because that's when it was something that was so unique and so underground and it was this when i was reading england's dreaming i was just it was like reading mods but it was about the beginning of the punk movement yeah but how also sort of um the involvement of the situationists and all those amazing slogans and artwork and the agit prop. So listen to the audiobook of England's Dreaming, narrated by the absolutely amazing Chris McDonald. Because he just had that kind of like he just had he just had the right tone of voice. It was cheeky, it was dirty, it had so much character, you know, it was like something out of a, like a Oliver Twist. You know, the, you know, and he just had the perfect voice. And I've actually listened. I've, well, I started listening to it again because sometimes I just go, I want to listen to that again. But my song, Necessary Genius, the chorus of that song began through a John Savage description. And I can't remember what I took, but he spoke about like, you know, misfits and dreamers and stuff and i wrote that down and then i'd actually forgotten where i where i where i'd nicked it from and then <laughs> then when i went back and listened to the book a second time it's like oh that's where i got it from you know but it's obviously you know i've made it my own and added more and it's it's a very personal thing because it's you know what i was trying to say in that song was like you know don't forget about these people you know yeah. there's actually a couple of people on that list um that you know, like Serge Gainsbourg, for instance. If Serge Gainsbourg was not was around now, he would have been cancelled. <laughs> and then you have Sinead O'Connor, who was cancelled for speaking mm. total truth to the world, and the world just wasn't ready to um, to hear that. And she literally did uh, get cancelled. You know, and she talks about it in her in her memoir, Rememberings. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, you know, this is, 
and this is today's book, which I'll introduce now. And you know, we, you and I have been having a you know little conversations, you know, with messages over the last year. And I remember I sent you a note of sympathy after her death because you wrote this beautiful piece, which I've already mentioned. Um, or you were you were interviewed for the Guardian, but it, you'd written a piece um, on social media about her, and it was very beautiful. Right. And you suggested in reply to that, you said, you know, I still want to do your podcast. And I really want to do Rememberings, which is Sinead's uh, memoir from 2021. Um, I remember in the interview, you'd said that a Catholic priest had asked you if you could get Sinead to sign a copy for him because he thought she was a prophet, which is That's quite right. a thing to hear coming from someone, you know, high up in the Catholic Church. Um, you also said that recording Sinead was like recording Nina Simone, which really stuck with me. Um, she also said in an interview in 2018, David is lovely and the kindest person I think I've ever met. Literally would give you the skin off his back, never mind his shirt, which is a great Sinead <laughs> phrase and classic, you know, um, really indicative of the amazing language she uses um, in the book. But before we get to the memoir itself, tell us about the night you met Sinead, because it's such a wonderful story. I. I'd just come back from holiday and um, a friend of mine just contacted me and said, have you any contacts could get us like a guest list ticket to Shane McGowan's 60th. There's a concert and like Nick Cave's playing, you know, Sinead's playing, uh, Bobby Gillespie, et cetera, et cetera. And of course I know Bob, um, he's a friend and, you know, we've worked together um, on, a, on two albums now. And, um, I contacted him and he got me on the guest list. Um, it might've actually been BP Fallon. I, you know, I, it's one of the two of them anyway, but I, I, I said, sure. But when I was in the process of doing it, I thought, you know what? She wouldn't mind going to this concert myself. <laughs> you know, there's a brilliant lineup and it was a chance to just to see all these people in one room celebrating Shane. Um, and so I got I got us on the on the guest list and we went we went down to Dublin, just jumped on a train, went down there and uh went to the concert. Absolutely fantastic, having a great time. Then Sinead came on and she like to say that she stole the show was a complete understatement. Like Everyone who's been at that show says the exact same thing. And I just remember just being like moved to tears, actually, not not like crying, but just welling up how she controlled um, her voice just in terms of velocity. And, you know, she doesn't she never liked compression, you know, on her voice. She needed, you know, so she creates her own by sort of pulling back from the microphone and still singing, you know, so you get that real dynamic. And uh, so after the show, I just went backstage and I was just standing there and then I kind of seen her in the corner of my eye and then she started walking in my direction and I just stopped her and I says, hi, you know, that was amazing. You know, like you don't know me from Adam, but my name's David Holmes and um, I'm a music producer. I live in Belfast. And I would love to make an album with you about healing because I was going through some issues myself with my own mental health and, um, you know, which I've now got completely under control. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, you know, 
And she really responded to that. And she said, you know, here's my number, give me a call. And then, you know, we just started talking to each other. And over this period of the next six years, we managed to sort of create like nine tracks, mm. which will hopefully be coming out. Um, I mean, I want it to come out now, <laughs> but that, you that, you know, that's actually nothing to do with me. You know, like that is in the hands of, of the state and I, I, I'm sure it is going to come out. But, you know, she is still, you know, she's not long gone. And so it's just a process of, of, mm. of just when the time is right, you know, for the family, uh, not for me. Um, but uh yeah, and we, we we just had the most incredible experience. Um, I did. I'm not sure she did, but I it was, you know, obviously she needed it was like recording, like Nina Simone, and then she starts singing, and it's like, holy shit, you know, it's someone who was born uh with a gift in the same way, you know, like all people who are like proper superstars, you yeah. know. And uh yeah, so we, we became friends. Over. So you met, so you met in 2017, 2018, um, 2018, and um, you know she lives in your bungalow, kind of uh, an old bungalow of yours in Belfast for a while and stuff like that. So, and she's obviously writing her memoirs at this point because they come out in 2021. Maybe she did a little bit more during the lockdowns. I don't know. But when did you become aware that she was writing the memoirs? Did she talk to you about that? Yeah, she did. Um, she had mentioned it a couple of times. But that was more in the second stint of of the record. You know, we recorded two tracks at the beginning. And, uh, but she wasn't in a great place, you know, with her mental health. And, you know, you just have to sort of like, I think when you're dealing with someone, like I I, I always recognized that Sinead um, had mental health issues. She would talk about them herself. So you gotta, you know, really respect that. You know, I mean, I've heard people say, "Oh, Sinead O'Connor, she's mad," blah, blah, blah. and you just go, "She's not mad. She's just got some mental health problems brought on by trauma, you mm. know, in, in her earlier life." And um, you know, everything is all wrapped up. I mean, there's so much stuff that you know she didn't understand. Never mind me or anyone mm. else. You know, she's the one who sort of lives her life. And, um, but she, she, she mentioned it very kind of like off the cuff. She didn't like ever like talk about it. You know, when she was with me in my studio and um, she was there to record and of yeah. course we would have a good laugh, but the things that I learned about her was how fiercely intelligent she was, um, how compassionate she was, um, how funny she was like really, yeah. really, you know, crudely funny, you know, and, um, just absolutely um, hilarious, you know. I remember one says, says uh, you know what, I actually couldn't even say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, go on. No. <laughs> no, she says, could you, she says, could you get me any weed? Because Dublin's as dry as a nun's cunt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised she said that, especially given, you know, her, in the book, she's so she's so funny. And I think that is something that... You know, obviously it's hard well, to write about after somebody dies. When, when the book came out, I spoke to her because the New York Times had contacted me about sort of just, you know, talking about Sinead. And 
Um, so we were we were in contact, and she says to me, "Get the audio book because the funny bits are much funnier." And she's right. I mean, the the audio book is actually amongst all, you know, the the the, the, the you know the, the the kind of the darkness and you know the uh, you know her, her relationship with her mother, you know, going in, you know. Um, to that place beside the Magdalene laundry, you know, for mm. shopping and all that. She, there's parts of it are just hilarious, you know, like you just like it's proper sort of laugh out loud. But I, I, I can see where she's coming from because, you know, the written word is, you know, you, 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 you take from it what you what you will. But when you actually hear someone saying it, especially because it's her narrating it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, it, it, I did find myself laughing so much. There's know? a brilliant bit in the postscript as a letter to her dad. And, you know, um, and it, that's another thing I love about the book. There's there's a real love for her family. Um, obviously, she has different relationships with different members of her family, but there's, there's this respect. Uh, even when there's been very difficult things going on, there's all this stuff, which is the way life is. It's not black and white. Um, but she writes this to her dad. Please know that your daughter would have been nutty as a fucking fruitcake and as crazy as a loon, even if she'd had St. Joseph and the Virgin Mary for parents and grown up in a little house in the prairie. <laughs> you know, there's lines like that. And if they're true or not, they're funny. I you know. know, they're full of, you know, this cheek. And also um, just f- f- full of love. And 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 uh, you know it, 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 it. She's mischievous, and you know, and 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 it's it's funny, but also, you know, being, you know, really just brutally honest, you know. Yeah. And that's Did not it, but- that she needed. I always thought that she was, you know, um, no matter how much. There's a part in the book where she says, "Every time I open my mouth, I get into trouble." <laughs> yeah. You know, but I I I think. Ultimately, Sinead never wanted to be a pop star. Uh, and, she, you know, she always, she you know, she said this herself. She's seen herself as a protest singer mm. who became a pop star, you know. And how did her, how did her writing style strike you in the book? Was it very different to the way she was in person? You can sort of hear her voice in it, can't you? Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, it's she's obviously a, a fantastic writer, but I think her style of writing is who she is you know it's very sort of straightforward but yet there's a complexity to it you know the way she uses language and she's i mean she's a very beautiful writer and i'm sure but the, it's 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 so balanced as well you know uh, and the the way she sort of just cuts into sort of street slang and then mm. you'll have sort of sections that are just you know just beautiful summations of the time um incredibly uh descriptive and you know just it felt very much like Sinead her talking but as a writer talking mm. about herself yeah 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 because yeah. the, you know, the, the, the O'Connor family are obviously you know there's something in the blood yeah, because her brother is a is a well regarded author as well, and her sister yeah. is you know very eminent in her field. So you've got this incredible intelligence running through the O'Connor family. Oh, for sure, oh, for sure. I mean, you could get nothing passionate, you know. <laughs> and she was like, you know, she I mean she didn't suffer fools, 
Um, but she was incredibly well read and also very, very in touch with what was going on in the world. Um, so she was, uh, she was, she, she was like a, like a sponge, you know? I mean, the thing about Sinead is, you know, there was only, there, there, there was only one, you know, she's just unique in a sense that like, you know, she was, she was unpredictable, you know, she was hilarious. She could be, you know, um, slightly tricky at times. Um, but most of the time she was just, she really, really cared about her work and cared about, um, you know, how she sounded quite very insecure. And I think that all comes across brilliantly in the book, you know, her, her passion for music, but also her passion for just real people and demanding to be taken serious as she, not yeah. who people want her to be, you know, like yeah. cut to her going to the Turkish barbers and yeah. really <laughs> crying because he thought, if I shave your head, your dad's going to come around and shoot me. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, she was just, she was incredibly real. And uh, I really, that's the thing that struck me about the book, you know, in all its com the, the complexity of her life. Yeah, there's so much that's great in that book. You know, her rebelliousness is clear throughout, you know, as you say, you said about her shaving her head, you know, how she's told her that she should have an abortion after getting pregnant, you know, and she has this strength to just ignore people, which for me, when I was growing up, you know, reading interviews with her in, you know, smash it, it was for me back then, you could still sense this strength coming off her, which part of the book have really stayed with you? You know, the, there's amazing bits about, you know, after she's ripped up the picture of the Pope, obviously, and the reception she gets to the Bob Dylan con tribute concert. I'm still mad at Bob Dylan for not intervening. <laughs> well, he never would, would he? I mean, no, like, no, <laughs> but he should have. <laughs> growing up where she did, I, 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 you know, because I, I've spent a lot of time with her making this record and, you know, we spoke a lot on the telephone. Um, She never, you know, really went into that early part of her life. Yeah. And I think that early part of her life why that's so important is because that tells you why she became the way she did. Hmm. And, um, and, and just the sheer kind of like, well, like I remember she said in the book, you know, the day she left Ireland was the best day of her life. And then every other day she left Ireland was the best day of her life. Mm -hmm. And and going into Ladbroke Grove and hanging right with 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 the the, the Rastafarians. Oh, and, that's amazing! Yeah, you know, and 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 just being introduced to dub. You know, the only dub record she knew, like the only like, you know, Jamaican music she knew was fifty four forty six. That's my numbers by the Mattels, and Israel Lights by uh, Desmond Decker, and so it was it, it was a very it was kind of like I mean still an amazing introduction to Jamaican. Mm -hmm. Music. Um, mine wasn't too far off, but um, and then going down to you know hanging out in the record shops with the Rastas, who who basically sort of took her in, yeah, and, and just really you know seen her as a sister, as she would say. You know, it was in the audio book. You know, she does all the voices, which is also <laughs> really funny. But um, but because you know it's coming from 
such a real and beautiful place. You know what I mean? It's it's just it's it's beautiful. So all all, all that stuff and 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 her 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 love for for reggae and even her whole introduction into music with mm. her brother playing you know the, the the bob dylan record and yeah elvis had just died but it didn't matter that elvis had just died because she had met this new guy called bob dylan yeah who she imagined being in a like a cradle you know against his chest and then she would fall asleep i mean her imagination yeah was unreal she writes about how you know, transporting music can be, not only as a listener, but as a singer and as a musician in a way that I think very few people have, have written, you know, kind of, um, you know, I've always been a fan of her voice and it just feels like there's a kind of other dimension to it. And obviously there's this idea throughout the book of music being this just magical, spiritual, ineffable thing. You know, obviously it's, got a religious element for her and it has, you know, sort of cosmic element for other people. One thing that really struck me um, is she's, you know, she seems to be getting a clarity through writing this book and she writes in it that I wasn't really present until six months ago. And she's obviously writing this, you know, um, you know, coming up to, you know, the, um, the 2020s, you know, in 2021 when the book came out Um the first time I'd really engaged with her music for years, I'm embarrassed to say, is when you and her put out the cover of Mahalia Jackson's Trouble of the World. Um, and it was wonderful to hear you mentioning Mahalia Jackson's name earlier with your mother played the records. And obviously um, there might have been a connection for Sinead too. You know, when that came out, you know, released by Heavenly Records, you know, kind of late 2020 after that, you know, insane pandemic year it just felt like hearing the voice of god <laughs> to me um yeah. tell me about the, the, the release of that single at that point and that collaboration well you know one of the things that i learned about Sinead, even though i kind of like suggested you know maybe songs that we could cover or whatever i think ultimately all her, the choices that she ever made pretty much um apart from maybe working with John Reynolds because they were like so close and tight and best friends. And, you know, they've got a history that, you know, it's, 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 their history is incredible. They, you know, they have a child together, but still remain friends. So, but I think for me, you know, she would be the one who would make that decision, you know, because mm. the song had to really speak to her and it was actually trouble. Of the world came about off the back of, the George Floyd sort of incident and um, Black Lives Matter movement and how that completely changed the world like overnight. And she wanted to say something, you know, and she had chosen that song, but she was very open to me doing it, you know, doing, doing it in, in a different way. And um, so there was only one person that was ever going to have that idea. And that was her, you know, mm -hmm. you know, that's how independent she was and how, you know, her beliefs as an artist and a human being were just a hundred percent real. Yeah. And um, so she says like, this isn't for the album or anything, but I just want to do it for the black lives matter, you know, and uh, movement. And she give all the, you know, the, 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 you know, the, you know, whatever money that was made went to that movement. And Don Letts directed the most incredible video 
yeah uh, for that but it, it, during the creation of that song she kind of let me go and sort of create like an instrumental and uh, i was listening to like different versions of it but there was like a version that i heard that had all these really sort of like ghostly uh like backing vocals but I've I've always loved the vocal arrangements in early like Disney movies. Right. But the voice is it's almost like the wind, you know? And it it it's got this it, it's really spiritual sounding. It's just got this incredible, like really like earthy, but just haunting uh sound. And a version that I heard had those kind of vocals. It was like this is my opportunity, you know. And uh so went about, set about, you know, recording the instrumental. And uh, and when I had that done, um, she then came up to Belfast to, to, to put her, like, I mean, we, I was sending her stuff, you know. Yeah. So she had lived with it and, you know, we, you know, she knew the arrangement. And the first day she came up and recorded her vocals, we did two songs that day. We did uh, No Veteran Dies Alone, which is the name of her album, um, and Trouble of the World. And we knew, like both of us knew, that it wasn't the definitive performance. And, you know, but she is incredibly professional, you know, when it comes to, like, her art. And she says, you know what, I can do this better. Um, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go back to Bray, where she was living, which is like two and a half hour drive. I'm gonna live with the song a bit more, and then I'll come up on like I think it was like a Wednesday morning or Wednesday afternoon. So on the Tuesday night, I was up working on the rest of the vocals, making sure they sounded good for her arriving the next day. Actually, get into bed at five a.m. and got into bed. Next minute, the doorbell rings and the, it, it's it's nine p.m. Like it's nine a.m. and I am a very light sleeper. And my wife Lisa said, "You know, I'll, I'll get it. You just sleep on." And but it was a voice in my head going, "I bet you that's Sinead. <laughs> and Lisa goes, "Says it's Sinead? I'm Like fuck, I didn't think she was going to be coming to like two or three. So I jumped into the shower. You know, like woke myself up. Went downstairs and hey, here she was. I was just so excited um, that I left Bray at like sort of four in the morning or something it was. And I've actually been sitting in your driveway since seven. So she waited till nine and then she came in and uh, straight upstairs, I, you know, set her up, headphones, hit record, one take. It's like, boom. It was like, holy shit. I mean, it's a weird experience because I, I'd literally only had a couple of hours kept, right? Yeah. But that completely just like woke me up. You know, it was like I felt like it suddenly felt like I'd slept for 12 hours. And it was just extraordinary. And then she did some harmonies. We went downstairs, made her a bacon sandwich, cup of tea. And she was back in her car by like uh, 10 or 10.30. Wow. You know? And then you go like that. That's greatness, you know, right there. Yeah, yeah. amazing. And to deliver the, the 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 vocal that she did, you know, was just like, oh my god, 
you know. Amazing. Exactly. I'll, she, never forget, I'll never forget that moment and, and, and for the rest of my life. I bet, my God, what an experience. And also, recently, we've heard another new Sinead track um, on a TV programme. Tell us about that, because if anybody hasn't heard that as well, it's it's amazing. Yeah, I, I, I was sort of... I, I was asked to do this television series called The Woman in the Wall uh, with the remarkable artist, force of nature, actor. But, you know, I, I Ruth Wilson, to me... yeah transcends you know she is in a, a place all on her own you know uh just a phenomenal talent right and um i was like you know you had me at ruth wilson and i you know it was, <laughs> it, it, it was uh, you know a story that i was you know a, a period that i was very familiar with 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 the magdalene laundries and the producer susan breen said to me uh, one day um, do you think we could get Sinead for this and I went I doubt it I, I doubt it you know we're working away on the album and then I thought about it and then it was like so I called her up and I, I was speaking to her about it and at, at this minute we had already recorded um, the song which is called the Magdalene song mm. um, for her album and she just says give them the Magdalene song and I was like really she says yeah it can't be anything other than that. Wow. And I was like, right. And then as the series developed, I was doing the score with a really great friend of mine called uh, Bran Irvine, who is uh, like a composer and just a, I've known Bran for over 30 years and he just lives down the road and we get together and we do certain things. The Woman in the Mall was one of those. And the producers, at one point the producers were saying to me, we don't know where we're going to put this Sinead track. I mean, it's embarrassing. And I was like, well, at one point they were like going, please send her our apologies. You know, and I'm like going, come on, like, you know, this is an opportunity that actually, I mean, opportunity is the wrong word. It's just, this was a, 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 a a moment where like every single box was ticked. Yeah, definitely. You know, and then uh, Lorna, the Ruth Wilson character in The Woman on the Wall, there's an element of her personality that actually reminds me of Sinead. And I basically just said, look, let's see if we can use it at the very, very end. The song itself, the Magdalene song is a, it's a song very much of two parts. The first part of the song is total heartbreak and raw emotions. And the second, which is very Sinead also as a person, the second part is totally triumphant and defiant actually is the right word. It's like this, that, that's not going to happen to me. Mm. So when I had the, the episode in front of me, I also had access to all the stems, which the producers didn't have. Right. So I was able to sort of through editing and stripping things away, make both parts of that song work within the framework, within the, and tell the story of what was actually happening. 
at the end of that. And when you work in film, every now and again, something happens and it's just magic. It's just, I believe in magic. That is mm. two completely different art forms brought together by total, you know, just fear. And it is just like, you know, it's just they're both tailor made for each other. Yeah. And um, so I'm I'm very much looking forward to people being able to hear, you know, the finished version when that goes out. You know, that that's that's on the record. So Yeah, brilliant. Um, just to finish, and I know this is a, maybe a hard question to ask, and it's a definitely a hard question to answer. You know, what has it been like revisiting the book after Sinead's death? You know, we were all so I say we, you know, I, <laughs> I and so many other people were, you know, really shocked when we heard the news in July and very I, sad I, for the artist she was and, you know, what she stands for, but also the person she was. Well, the biggest sort of travesty about Sinead's death, apart from losing her, of course, I'm talking about the reaction from the public, was... You know, I was just like, why couldn't the people have just shown her this love when she was alive? And she did get a lot of love. I mean, listen, the amount of people, like when people found out that I was working with her, it was like, oh my God, you're working with Sinead O'Connor. That, that woman is amazing. What was one of the most beautiful things about after that, after it was actually not the sort of the, the, the obituaries and, you know, you know, by newspapers and stuff like that. It was to do with, just people and I, I you know I obviously get sent a lot of stuff and I, I, I went online and I looked a lot at, at, at the response but it was just normal like people who had lived a tough life and Sinead had saved them I've, I've seen I've seen that I lost count how many tweets and like you know messages that people put up saying growing up in the 80s Sinead O'Connor saved my life you know she was like a therapist to me and one of the things that made me think is that she really suffered to help other people. Now she didn't know that she was doing that, but that is part of her legacy. Mm. She, she helped so many people while she was actually sort of deeply like, you know, deeply suffering herself. Um, when I heard that she, you know, when I got the message that, that she died, I mean, it, it took me a long time to process it, you know, but I do know that Sinead was, she was just a fierce, fierce survivor. And, you know, it, it, it's that, you know, that, that line, you know, they tried to bury me, but they didn't know that I was a seed, mm. you know, and to me that sums up a big section of her sort of creative life and, um, especially after the, you know, the 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 the, the tearing up of the the, mm. the picture of the Pope mm. on SNL. So I'm still I'm still processing it. But I, I you know one thing I will say, I mean she loved all her children, like she did, uh, like equally, and uh, but to lose a son in the manner, um, which she did. I mean, I don't know how she kind of dealt with that. You know, I really don't. 
you know, being a parent myself, it's just, I can't even thought mm -hmm. of it that mm -hmm. if, you know, but, um, there was a part of me that felt that she's at peace. You know what I mean? It's like, I, like, I was really surprised and, you know, and sad, but not surprised in a way either because of how troubled she was. And, and, you know, I, I, I just think, yeah, it's just, a, it's something that I'm still processing, you know, revisiting the, the, the book, the audio book. I found it to be really comforting. You know, I felt really blessed to have actually spent, you know, a short time in this world as um, her collaborator and, and, and eventually her friend. And, you know, I have nothing but fond memories of her mm. and, you know, uh, obviously feel very blessed you know, I had that opportunity. Of course. Um, but you know, she Sinead will live on, you know, long after we're all dead, and she will continue to um comfort people through her songs and you know the vibrations of her music and that that vibration, that invisible vibration that you get from music as a as a force of healing. She will do that for as long as the world exists. New generations that haven't even discovered Sinead O'Connor yet, you know, and they're going to, and they're going to fall yeah. in love with her. Yeah, and that's the magic of music, as you as you put it earlier, you know. Um, and similarly, when I think of so many other artists, you know, and many of them female or not white men who kind of sort of get celebrated in death when they haven't in life I you know we have their music and, and it's work it's it's up to us to remember that that music came from their life and their living and you know rememberings is such a great thing to have for us to have to read about her and read it in her voice so thank you so much for bringing it in um I usually say um who they're published by it's published by Penguin at 20 pounds but we really recommend the audiobook version don't we and I know you told me to listen to it and I have been listening to it and it's extraordinary to hear it in her voice so um get the audiobook if you can um get get both buy the book as well and finally it's our last christmas special book song a song inspired by a work of literature and basically david i've made you pick necessary genius because it it features white rabbit's very own david keenan so tell us about that david keenan is someone that i just admire um not just as an author a, a writer a poet a a, a, a psychedelic warrior <laughs> he, he just uh releases energy that is just very very um addictive you know and i just i love his spirit you know i love people that actually writing in his case is just something that he does um in the same way making music was just something that weatherall did there's actually sort of like they, they transcend their art actually because there's so much more to them um especially just like on a on, on a human level um so that's why i believe in david keenan fantastic well you know how better to to finish a white rabbit podcast thank you so much david for coming on the podcast today i know you've been listening to it which i love as well but you know having the music that you made for it has been a real 
pleasure as well. And also talking about your friend Sinead has been a you know, great privilege for us. Um, everybody listening, um, obviously we've recommended you some books today. Um, if you want any more gift ideas for Christmas, there are two other series of songbook available for you to listen to on your preferred podcast provider. You can listen to Shirley Collins on Alan Lomax, Ben Myers on Julian Cope, Leah Saudi on Jerry Lee Lewis, Cozy Fanny Tutu on Daphne Oram, Vashti Bunyan on, on Marianne Faithful, and much, much more. Just type Songbook White Rabbit into whatever search engine you find us there, along with our brilliant full book song playlist. So, this has been the last of our Songbook Festive Specials. Thanks so much to everyone for listening and to David, Tracy, and Matt for joining me. I hope you enjoyed them and have a very happy and restful festive period. You've been listening to Songbook, the White Rabbit podcast with me, Jude Rogers. Have a great Christmas. This has been a White Rabbit and Carmelite Studios production. Presented and written by Jude Rogers. Music by David Holmes. Episode producer, Jake Alderson. Editor, Dan Jones. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.